Hi everyone and welcome to episode 11 of the FFS show, a podcast about misinformation and fact checking by the ferret. My name is Ali Bryan, I'm one of your hosts and with me for the final time is Mags Taylor. How are you doing Mags? I'm alright Ali, how are you? Not bad. So the big news in uh, FFS land is that you are moving on uh, to pastures new. I am. I am. This is our our last podcast together. I know. 11 glorious podcasts of fun. Well, at least we made it to double figures. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You managed to deal with me for 11 whole podcasts. (laughs) Admirable. (laughs) This one's not finished yet. (laughs) Maybe not. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So we'll obviously be sad to see you go, and uh, it's been a pleasure working with you. Likewise. But you're not gone yet, so, you know, you can't stop working. (laughs) (laughs) We've still got one more fact check to look at. Um, So what are we doing in this week's podcast then? Well, we're looking into a claim uh, made by Labour's Jackie Bailey that said that Scotland's vaccine efforts lagging behind the rest of the UK. So we've looked into that one and you've also done a rather interesting interview, haven't you? Yes, I interviewed Ferret co-founder and dark money investigative journalist Peter Gagan talking about the links between dark money and disinformation uh, online. Shining light into the darkness. Shining light into the dark money, exactly. So should we get into it then? Let's do it. So, Max, for your final check, you've chosen very appropriately a uh, COVID-19 vaccines claim, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there have been an awful lot of claims related to COVID-19 vaccines since since we've been doing this podcast. But th- this one this one was quite interesting. It came from Labour's Jackie Bailey looking into mm-hmm. Scotland's vaccine efforts. So she made a claim last week Um Labour had issued a video saying that the way to win the race against COVID is to cut the gap between vaccine doses. But she claimed Mm -hmm. that Scotland is lagging behind the rest of the UK when it comes to its vaccine efforts. Her her exact words were, our vaccine effort lags behind the rest of the UK. Okay, so obviously all parts of the UK are doing an enormous mass vaccine rollout at the moment. Exactly. When did Jackie Bailey make the claim and what was the kind of state of things then? Yeah, so that that was earlier in this month. So the the UK government publishes all the data from the the four nations on the Mm. number of people that have been vaccinated. So taking as the the date that we looked at the data, it was 12th of July. So from 12th of July, there were 3.9 million people in Scotland had received one dose of a vaccination. Mm. And on the same date, 2.9 million people had received both doses, so had been double jabbed. So proportionally... Almost 90%, 88.9% of Scottish adults had received one dose and 65.5% had received both doses. So how does that compare to the rest of the UK nations? So when it comes to one dose, Scotland wasn't lagging. It was actually um, proportionally had administered the second highest number of first doses. So on on the same date, 87% of adults in England had had one dose almost 82% in Northern Ireland and Wales was the leader with 90% of adults had received one dose. Slightly different matter when it came to two doses, which is exactly what Labour were talking about. Um, They they said to to beat the race against the the virus, you have to kind of close that gap between two doses. But still, Scotland wasn't 
completely behind there. So there were 65.5% of the adult population had received two doses. In England, it was 66.2%. In Northern Ireland, it was 65 And Wales, again, was way out in the lead with 73.2%. So mm-hmm. proportionally, Scotland had uh, vaccinated the, the second lowest proportion, although it was only marginally behind Northern Ireland, just 0.5 percentage points there. So yeah, it was lagging. England mm-hmm. and certainly all, all the nations were lagging Wales, uh, but it, it was pretty much on a par with Northern Ireland on, on that measure. In some ways, the claim, you, you can refer to like the specific day that, that she makes a claim, but also yeah. the vaccine race is more of a kind of long-term, it's a, lo- it's a long-term program. It's obviously been vaccinating for months now. Yeah, yeah. How have the kind of relative figures changed through the course of the vaccination rollout. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Now, it's worth taking a look at that government website. They have um, all the data right from when the vaccination programme began back in December for all the nations. And it's really interesting. They have the the data cumulatively on a daily basis, on a seven-day rolling basis. And the graphs that they have are are really quite interesting because it shows Mm -hmm. that there's been a lot of kind of ebb and flow in the way that vaccines have been administered. Is this from the uh, coronavirus data government website? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, coronavirus.data.gov.uk. Yeah, it's really worth having a look at. Uh, Now, you would think because the, the vaccines... It's kind of a UK-wide programme, but obviously the the individual governments are doing it their own way. But Mm. in terms of acquiring the vaccine, you you would think it would all be done in the same way. Because a lot of the reason that is given for when when the rollout slows down is that availability Mm -hmm. has been a problem. But yeah, if you look at that graph, uh, uh, those various graphs, it shows that at various points, Scotland's been in the lead, Northern Ireland right at the start was in the lead and it, it's really fallen quite far behind. Um, mm-hmm. Wales kind of halfway through the programme really, really took off and it's completely been in the lead in, in double vaccinating its population yeah. uh, for, for quite a few months now. But yet, like, although on the 12th of July, it probably was fair to say that Scotland was lagging the rest of the UK because it was just ever so slightly above Northern Ireland in terms of double vaccinating people. Mm. If, if you look at it at a different point, I mean, we're, we're now a little bit further on from the 12th. So like, yeah. perhaps th- those figures have changed again. And next week it will have changed again. It, it varies significantly. And I guess it depends on take up as well. We're, we're getting down into the, the younger population now as well. And that kind of depends a lot on whether if people are coming forward to get their vaccines. And there are various reasons why people haven't. I mean, I think initially... Perhaps younger people weren't getting the letters because they'd moved homes more. There was a bit of evidence about that, that mm-hmm. the letters were going to wrong addresses, etc. So, yeah, lots of different reasons for that. OK, so what verdict did we end up going with on this? Well, we went with half true because it was fair. When Jackie Bailey made the claim on the date she made it, um, 65.5% of Scottish adults had been fully vaccinated. And that was only ever so slightly 0.5 percentage points mm. ahead of Northern Ireland. Um, it was behind England and it was significantly far behind Wales. Um, so on on that particular date, yeah, it probably was fair enough to say Scotland was lagging. But as we've seen, looking looking at the graphs, looking at the data, there are ebbs and flows. And I mean, yeah. Scotland could it, it could fall far behind. It could go significantly further ahead of the other nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it really depends at the point in time you pick it. So so we went with half true. 
Yeah, and it doesn't seem like one of the UK nations is way behind everyone else. Exactly, exactly. You're listening to the FFS Show. To help us do more podcasting and more fact-checking, join The Ferret for just £3 a month. Go to theferret.scot forward slash subscribe. Now it's time for my interview with Ferret co-founder and the writer of the book Democracy for Sale, Peter Gagan. His work covers the link between dark money and misinformation. I asked him first, how would he define dark money? What is dark money? Is it like dark matter? Is it like, you know, what, what does it look like? Well, basically, I, it's it's really, it's an American neologism. Like a lot of our words, it's it's a word that comes from America. And I use it really in the American context, following on from Jane Meyer, who's a fantastic um, writer at The New Yorker, who wrote the seminal text on dark money called Dark Money. Uh, and basically right. what dark money is, is any, uh, is any money that gets into the political process that you can't see. You know, and it takes different forms in different places. So like in America, what you're talking about there are things like super PACs, these anonymous campaign funding groups, um, Mm. public action committees, PAC, which can funnel massive amounts of money into politics. We saw it during the last presidential election. We can see it in lots of others, too. In in Britain, you can do you can't do that kind of scale. We don't have as much, but there's lots of other ways you can influence politics. Things like buying anonymous ads on Facebook and giving money money, uh, through think tanks who don't have to declare their donors. Um, libertarian think tanks in Britain, like the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Adam Smith Institute, who are very close yeah. to government, have lots of government meetings, close to policymakers, don't declare their donors. So again, that's kind of dark money. So it's it's this kind of range of things. So it's everything from anonymous donations to political parties through things like in Britain, unincorporated associations, Facebook ads, think tanks. So it's, it's a cold gamut of things. But really, fundamentally, dark money is, you know, influencing politics, money influencing politics you can't see. How would you characterize the link between dark money and disinformation? One of the reasons I think we talk about dark money now much more than we did before, like, because ironically, you know, in Britain, 20 years ago, we didn't know who gave money to politics at all. We published nothing. Yeah. We had no data at all. Like at one stage, Lord McAlpine, the then Conservative Party treasurer in the 80s, used to wander around the city of London with a big sack asking people <laughs> to fill it. And so in a funny way, there's, there's, you know, we've got way more transparency than we used to do. But I think I would argue, and I think it's hard, it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite a compelling argument, I would say, that the opportunity to warp and shape our politics in ways that we don't know has probably never been be- bigger. We've never seen more of it. One of the... So the and the, the, these things are all slightly connected, I think. If you're talking about disinformation and misinformation, you're, you are talking about the internet. And at the same time, what the internet has done, I think, and, and the rise of digital politics has changed the game. You know, 20 years ago, there was only so much campaigning you could do with anonymous funding. You needed people to do it. You needed bodies on the street. You needed people to chat right, doors. Yeah. You know, you, you put an advert in a newspaper. People saw it. You know, if you said if you did something like nefarious, it, there was a limit to how much you could really influence the political process, I would argue. What's happened is coupled with, you know, I don't think, and as I say, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing more small bits of money dripping into the political system and creating waves and change because of the internet at the same time as we're seeing a rise in disinformation and misinformation. And I think in many ways, you know, what's, what I see a lot, you know, and I wrote about some of this in the recent Scottish election, I looked at groups who bought Facebook ads. Um, and so mm-hmm. what was interesting in Britain under, well, it's not supposed to change, but in Britain, um, if you get a leaflet through your door at election time, you might see a little picture of your candidate and a little imprint that says, you know, maybe a, a kind of a line of, of a line of possibly a lie or some bar chart that's complete nonsense, and a little imprint that says who's where this advert has come from and who paid for it. 
online we don't have to do that there's been mm-hmm. no digital imprints and that's, that's supposed to come in with new legislation in london but actually in holyrood we've had that at the last election so that was interesting i was like that's great so we've got we can see who's paid for it but i was really surprised and the ferret did some of it and i kind of did it I did yeah. a little bit more of it after um, after the election, looking at the number of people who just bought loads of ads and had you know no real details about who they were at all, or you know there was there was at the end of it still no clarity about who these people actually were. They'd given a name of somebody, but clearly they hadn't bought the ads. Um, mm-hmm. And I was what was really striking about it, and the same thing I think you see in general when it comes to this sort of thing, is that. What um what this kind of dark money often buys you isn't like a kind of cuddly vote SNP, vote Labour, vote Conservative. Yeah. It's actually a much harsher message a lot of the time. And the reason for that's quite simple. Online is really easy place to kind of as we all know, people get polarized online. It's quite easy to whip up a lot of debate, a lot of fer- uh, fervor online. But at the same time, it's very easy then for political parties or political outriders to um, to disavow the things that people say online about them. So, you know, it becomes something like, it's almost like an arm's length thing. You go, well, it's nothing to do with me. You know, it happens online. It happens away from prying eyes. You know, I looked yeah. at, um, what I was really interested in was in, in Scotland, a big increase in pushing people towards tactical voting in the last 48 hours of the Hollywood election. By the mm-hmm. time you're writing about that and seeing it, it's already happened. So there's, a, so there's a real, and that's the kind of stuff that no political party would want to be seen to touch. It's toxic for a political party, but that's where your outrider, and you know, a couple of thousand pounds can buy you a huge amount of Facebook ads. And often I think we've seen them spreading mis- and disinformation. You know, I looked at the last general election, 2019, there was about £700,000 spent by these sort of groups. Groups that appear out of nowhere, you know, yeah. a week before the election, start buying Facebook ads, groups with names like Capitalist Worker, the campaign against Corbynism. Mm. And often what they do is they target specific ele- sections of the electorate with very specific messages that chime with political parties. Um, and it's interesting looking at the research, because why does this matter? You might say, look, it's the same thing as a political party buying an advert. Does it really matter? Academic research is, on this is really interesting. There's been some recent academic research that's seen that if you see a message, a political message, and if you say you're a Labour voter and you see a political message and it says Labour, you have a certain way, you will think positively about it. If it's a conservative political message and it's the exact same message, but it's in conservative blue, you yeah. have a more negative reaction. But... If it comes from an independent, supposedly independent group, a group yeah. you've never heard about that says it's not a political party, it's a third party, you'll be across the piece, people are far more positive. And that's where there's a real, that's the real danger with this stuff is that you can warp and shape debates. You can influence what people are doing in ways that we just can't see because it, it um, transparency just doesn't get there. Yeah, well, I think that's a really interesting point as well, because with regard to this Facebook advertising, quite often when I'm uh, on Facebook and when listeners will be on Facebook or on social media, they might only ever see one advert from one of these groups because they pop up and they'll disappear within the space mm. of months. You're not necessarily going to look at the provenance of where it's come from. You're going to see the thing. You're going to see the quite often really well-produced single advert about a single issue. That might affect your thinking, and then that affects how you act or how you vote, potentially. Yeah, that's exactly it. And what's, what's really striking is with these sort of groups is that, you know, as you say, they're often very slickly produced. They, you know, I was really struck by the likes of this capitalist worker and others. They mm. appeared out of nowhere. And this is where I do think the legislation people are asking, and this is what I'm kind of talking about in Parliament, there's a reasonable question to ask about how this is working. Because a lot of these groups, as the, say the 2019 general election, we saw the same actually with the Hollywood election. Groups register a month before their vote, six weeks before yeah. the vote, have had no footprint before. 
They then put in spending returns at the end of 50, 60, 70, 80,000 pounds. They don't have to declare, if, if they don't make have any donors below above 7,500 pounds, which is quite a lot of money, they don't have to declare mm-hmm. them. They say we've had no donors. So these 700,000 pounds, not a single donation was declared. And, and then I noticed as well, because I traced them, most of them did not even post even like well done. Uh, the day after the election, you know, yeah, they just disappeared. Done. Yeah, and which begs the question: Imagine you'd imagine, Ali, we'd ran this campaign. We'd managed to raise seventy thousand pounds without even having a crowdfunder, all on the internet, which is what they claim. We've yeah. managed to galvanize all these people on the issue. We've managed, raised enough money to buy these slick ads. We've done this huge big campaign. Would you not then go? Well, I'm going to keep. I'm going to. You know, I'm not politics. Yeah. This isn't party politics. You know, I'm concerned about this issue of like. Well, one of them was like pro landlord. I'm concerned about landlords, and they're not getting mm. a fair deal. Would you not then go? Well, the government's in power. I'm going to hold their feet to the fire with this legions of people yeah. who've given me sixty, seventy, eighty thousand pounds, and we know from the ferret how hard it is to raise anything yeah. like that. No, they disappear. Once you look at the people behind these groups, they're all people who have previous form. They are people who have done this before. The same thing. That was what was so mm-hmm. striking looking at the Holyrood election. The people buying ads were mainly in England, and they were the same people who bought ads for the Brexit referendum, who bought yeah. ads for Brexit campaigning, who then bought ads in the 2019 general election. You know, it's a very clear playbook. And I think that there is a real issue there with, with misinformation, with the spreading of misinformation. Do you think basically the situation we're in, uh, and this is something that is a wider problem with uh misinformation but with like the dark money specifically with relation to electoral campaigns where traditionally there they would be regulated you know we can argue how strongly they're regulated but the uh, advertising and uh, campaigning is regulated but the internet is almost and there's these people that are behind these campaigns are using it in a way that almost regulation has not yet caught up with so they're 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 lever- they're working in that gray area between what is what is possible to do now for a relatively small amount of money as we say you know a few thousand pounds which them is going to be nothing and they're able to get their message across and potentially have a massive influence and the you know your electoral commissions etc are scrabbling to try and keep up with what they're doing and how to actually regulate it oh massively so i i make the point often i I said that we have like you know analog rules for digital age i think this is this is a huge issue and in many ways by the time you've by the time you've, you're all, almost always fighting the last war. So if you look mm-hmm. at the government's yeah, totally. current electoral integrity bill, it has some stuff on this and it's about imprints and stuff. And I like the imprints are almost just a useful example for how bad the legislation is. Do I really think that, like, that sticking a Tory logo or Labour logo on the bottom of one of Facebook ads is going to make a huge difference? You kind of, if they're official party, um, if they're official party output, you kind of have a, it's a pretty clear clue that it is already. You know, it doesn't yeah. need me, me, neither me nor you would really need to look at it too long to go. Well, yeah, clearly that's a political party uh, production. Yeah. Um, so it's really that thing of fighting that, and that's what I mean about Facebook ad library. You know, in many ways, this is already migrating out to other places. We saw it at the last general election in 2019. You know, we saw, you know, we we and we also saw willingness. I think the other aspect of this as well is that not to let political parties off the hook, we saw willingness for political parties to be far more hard-nosed online and to do to push the envelope online in ways I think they would never do in real life. We saw it, I think, first with the Brexit referendum. You know? Yeah. Look at that referendum, 2016. Well, the big thing you might people remember is the bus with the NHS on it. But, like, you know, mm-hmm. broadly, that was... that, And that was very much of a piece. It was... You know, the Leave campaign was kind of pushing, like, these are the benefits of Brexit. Yeah, that but was quite traditional what, in a way. It was very traditional, but what they were doing yeah. online was really interesting because online they were pushing much harder messages. There was a yeah. lot of stuff about Turkey joined the EU as a big yeah. driver of their online stuff. A lot of it happened in the last 72 hours of the referendum. 
Turkey joining the EU, Syrian refugees coming, you know, pictures of kind of horror, you know, like there, there was, what was interesting with Nigel Farage, when it happened the day of Joe Cox's murder, I think the morning of it, the day before, this you know, famous picture at Breaking Point and a line yeah. of, of, of immigrants, well, actually in Slovenia, but yeah, he was, what was interesting was Nigel Farage was doing in real life what was actually happening online. But no one was talking about what was happening online because everyone was so slow to catch up with it. By the time you get to 2019 general election, and obviously that was run by this pretty similar people, Dominic Cummings mm-hmm. ran the Leave campaign, then ran the 2019 general election for Boris Johnson. You saw, I think, stuff we'd never seen in British politics before. You know, the, the, the Conservative Party rebranded its Twitter account as a fact-checking account during a live debate, yep. then doubled down on it. At one stage, they bought Google ads. Where, so if you Google the Labour Party manifesto, you got a fake conservative pastiche of the Labour Party yeah. manifesto. You know, we saw misinformation spreading like wildfire on, uh, through, particularly on WhatsApp. You know, that one of my Matt Hancock aides, Matt Hancock's aides had been punched outside a hospital in Leeds, yeah. which hadn't happened. And by the time anyone's reacting to that, you know, if you're, it's that thing. If if you're reacting, you're losing. And yeah, I think exactly. that's the real problem. And my big concern, I guess, is that the 2019 general election showed that there's almost no penalty to be paid for online bad behavior by political parties. I'm interested uh, with regard to like misinformation, because that's obviously why we're here. Uh, yeah. COVID-19 misinformation um, has obviously been an a absolute epidemic, um, an infodemic, mm. as they say. Um, how does that link to dark money? And what have you found out in terms of, I'm interested to know what your sort of perspective is on that. What I thought was really interesting, and once it started, and I've done a little bit of reporting on it, um, not mm. massive amounts, but I've done a bit of reporting on it. Um, and in, But I was really struck almost from the start of the pandemic was how, how and I guess there's certain, you almost have to see these different groups that are on this spectrum. You've got like your, you know, you've got your anti-vaxxers and you've got your like mm. kind of telegram groups and all the rest of us who are sitting out, say, in one space and all around things like 5G. And I, I became very interested in it. Like I joined a bunch of 5G Facebook groups. And I saw people go down the rabbit hole who I knew. So I got became really interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um and so like that so dash like you know like um that was something I started getting really, really interested in. But the thing is what then what I but what I then also started to notice was like Outside, in the kind of more mainstream world, the likes of mm-hmm. what you call the what became the COVID recovery group of conservative MPs, who I think have been very influential. Yeah. Uh like kind of and but very COVID skeptic. The places like the kind of uh, people like uh, Sunitra Gupta and uh, Carl Hennigan writing in the Telegraph. Mm-hmm. So professors, you know, who have who have expertise and all the rest. So people like Paul McKeague at Edinburgh University, quite controversial, um, uh, prof- um, per, you know, kind of professionals in this world. Yeah. And, and so I started looking at them more. And what was really striking, I felt, was the overlap between the worlds I'd narrated around the post in in, in my book about Brexit around. You know, around both misinformation and actually how you how you influence politics. Yeah. So you know, I was really struck struck to see a few things. Uh, the overlap between the European Research Group and the COVID Recovery Group of, of Tory MPs is massive. Uh, yeah. Steve Baker, same guys behind the two of them, very very libertarian, um, very very um, you know like um, very close to kind of right wing American libertarians. Um, you, you, has also believes in going back to the gold standard carries a piece of silver around with him all the time you know it's a yeah. interesting character but he was a, the eminent screech behind both of these very a similar membership but also very similar media strategy he knew how to play the media 
In the yeah. same way that you used to have European research group spokespeople, you then had COVID recovery group spokespeople. And so I thought that was really interesting. So, and I noticed that they'd had funding, actually, I wrote about it very recently, from these unincorporated associations. So we didn't know where right. the money comes from. And in the same way, as for these kind of groups, very small amounts of money can make a humongous difference. Like the European yeah. research group, all they needed really was... They got two grand a year from about 50 MPs, hired two researchers, and next thing you know, push it, push it, push it, push it, push it. And that's the thing, you know, um, that's the thing I was really struck by. Uh, so I've kind of become, I became, that really interested me, but also mm-hmm. how, you know, certain groups are able to use me- media. And I wrote, I remember writing a piece for The Guardian at the end of last year where I was talking about Sweden, because I noticed that a lot of the same libertarian yeah. groups I was interested in, like the IEA, like these backbench Tory MPs were all talking up Sweden. I don't think I've ever written anything I got so much hate mail for. Like I was getting like three or four emails a day. People like, oh my God, there's a whole world of that stuff out there. So that's what I became really interested in. Like, I, what I was saying, I wasn't saying I knew anything about Sweden, but I was saying it was like, like with Brexit, it was really interesting how an entire narrative was being framed and pushed by a very small number of people. And it was really, really getting huge traction. And I think that's the bit I kind of focused on. But I think, you know, but I think there's lots of other tentacles out there. That's all we've got time for, for episode 11 of the FFS podcast. Thanks to Peter Gagan for coming on. Uh, It was an interesting discussion, I thought. So 11 podcasts and this is your last one, Mags. How do you feel? Pretty sad, actually. I, I mean, it's a bit weird leaving in an odd number more than anything, but yeah. It's, oh, yeah. Uh... Should really have left at 10, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, maybe scrap this one then, eh? Yeah, yeah, okay. Remember, you can contact us uh, via email at factcheckattheferret.scot if you've got any uh, queries, suggestions, or anything you want to say about us or the podcast. And you can get in contact with us on Twitter at ferretscott or on Facebook by searching for the ferret. Since it's your last podcast i'll leave the last word to you choose it wisely goodbye